you know, I'm reminded of, of, a, of a, a gentleman. Uh, he was a witnessing to a, a, a Jewish friend of his. He was, his name was Alfred um, Ackley in 1932. He was an evangelist and a composer. And he's witnessing to a Jewish friend who had come to his meeting. And his, his friend said, why do I want to worship a dead Jew? And that really troubled him, you know. And he's, so he's trying to reach this guy. And, and this, this guy, uh, Alfred Ackley, he got up on the Easter morning, 1932. I, if my memory serves me, it was April the 27th of 1932. And he turns on the radio while he's getting ready to go to church, and he hears this liberal pastor. He says, it makes no difference if Jesus is alive or dead. He said, I, it wouldn't matter to me if his bones were dried dust somewhere in a Palestinian grave. The, the main point is the truth marches on. And Alfred grabbed his radio and threw it across the room and said, it's a lie. And so he goes to church. He comes home that evening, and he's still upset because the fact that people don't understand Jesus is alive. And so his wife said, Alfred, you need to do what you do best. Sit down and write a song, and you'll feel better. So on the, on the Easter evening of April the 27th, 1932, he sat down and he began to write, I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living, whatever men may see. I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives, he lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me. Come on, church. He talks with me along life's narrow way. And you ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. So rejoice, rejoice, O Christians. Lift up your voice and sing eternal hallelujah to Jesus Christ our King. The hope of all who seek him, the hope of all who find. None other is so loving, so pure and kind. He lives, he lives. Come on, church. He lives today, amen. And that's why we can rejoice. The old song when I was in, uh, uh, you said, it, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know that he holds the future. Then life is worth the living because he lives. And so, you know, heaven is a reality. His resurrection is a reality. Hell is a reality. You know, Jesus actually talked more about hell than he did heaven. You know, and I'm not here to kind of, I don't want you to feel the flames this morning, but we need to understand that hell is a reality. There's different levels of hell. There's different, uh, I believe that there are different levels of judgment. You know, not everybody gets this. Why is the point of a judgment if everybody gets the same thing? It, this is just a personal belief. But we know that it's real and it's bad, whatever it is. Whatever you think hell to be, it's bad. But heaven is another subject. Heaven is good. And, and, and that's where we want to go. And so <clears throat> heaven is a reality. Uh, there was an old, you know me in songs, right? Another song, I used to sing this song actually as an old gospel song. It says, John tells of a city that he saw coming down where no death or sorrow will be known. And someday we can go there through God's marvelous grace, forever live in that heavenly home. I can almost, the chorus says, I can almost see the lights of that city. I see them gathered all around the great white throne. With faith in my Savior and his marvelous love, I can almost see the lights of home. And sometimes when I'm burdened, my cross seems hard to bear. 
And oh, Satan, he tries to dim my views. Then I just look up to Jesus because he's standing close by. And once again, his great light shines through. I can almost see the lights that has sitting in the chorus again. And see, the thing about heaven, that's great. We've got all that to look forward to. That's our goal. That's our destiny. But church, we don't have to wait till we get there to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what Brother Ackley was saying. He walks with me. He talks with me. It's not just about well, one day when we get there in the sweet by and by. No, it's the sweet right now. Jesus wants to have a relationship with us where he walks with us, he talks with us. When I am burdened, when I'm struggled down, I look up and he's standing close by. The Bible says he is a friend that is closer than a brother. So he is with us, church. He, is, he wants to have a relationship with you. Now, I had all my sermons planned out last night. I was getting ready to close it up, and Jeannie comes in and says, you've got to watch the Jesus Revolution again. She says, I just believe God wants you to watch that again. And we like it so much because it is deja vu for us. I am a product of the Jesus Revolution. If you don't know what that is, it was a movement that swept across the nation in the 1960s and 70s. And it was the, the, the hippies became Christians and they call them Jesus freaks. I remember going to the family reunion. My hair was down to here and my cousin said, he's a freak, <clears throat> meaning he's a dope smoking hippie. All right. And I said, yeah, I'm a freak. I'm a Jesus freak. But if they would have said that to me just weeks before that, months before that, they would have been right. I was a dope smoking hippie. I had backslid from God. And so I watched this movie again last night and, and I wrote down some of the conversation because she was right. There, there was something said in there that I, I want you to see. Now, Chuck Smith, he was the pastor of Calvary Chapel Church in uh, I think it was Costa Mesa, California. And his church was, it was dead and dry and it was just drying up, you know. There was no life in it. And... Um, He's watching these hippies on TV and they're, they're in the streets and they're dancing around and they're like, you know, they're, they're just dropping out of everything. You know, their thing was tune in, turn on and drop out. And so he's watching, he's like the whole world is, is going crazy, you know. And his daughter was saying, well, I think that they're, they're, they're good to express what they feel and all this. And there's this conversations going back and forth between him and his daughter. And these are true accounts of what was taking place. And he said something about a hippie. He said, well, you bring me a hippie and then I'll, I'll, I'll see what they're all about. So she finds this guy named Lonnie Frisbee who had just turned his life over to Christ. And he was a full-fledged, bona fide hippie. And she brings him home. And so he sits down at the table with Chuck Smith and they're having a conversation. And he says, Lonnie, tell me about yourself and about your people. He said, well, I was in San Francisco in Haight-Ashbury doing drugs. We did everything. We did everybody. And he said, drugs. He said, it's a quest. Chuck Smith said, a quest for what? He said, for God. He said, there's an entire generation right now searching for God. We thought acid was going to save the world. He said, but that was a lie. 
As much as a lie is what we were rebelling against. Chuck Smith said, well, what brought you to this realization? He said, I kept searching and searching and I finally just got to the end of it all and there was still a void. How many of you know that's true? A lot of people, they're walking around, there's a void in their life. They've tried everything to fill it up and nothing will fill that void except Jesus Christ, nothing. He said, and it was still a void. He said, and my people, he said, they are a desperate bunch. He said, in desperation, there is power in that word. He looked at Chuck Smith and said, what would it take, Chuck Smith, for you to be desperate? He said, there are a bunch of kids looking for the right thing in all the wrong places. They're looking for things the wrong way and in the wrong places. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me. Now, in, in the book of Luke chapter 15, if you want to look there with me, Luke 15 verse 11, it says, and then he said, Jesus is talking, a certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided them to, his, to their livelihood. Verse 13, and not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he was gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate. And no one gave him anything. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, everybody say that. When he came to himself, say it again. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to his father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry. Father, I just ask you this morning, Lord, as we examine the word of God and Jesus, your words, as you tell this story, about this man and his son and all the behavior that he had, the choices that he made, God, and, and how he came to himself and returned. God, I pray that you open the eyes of our understanding, Lord, and help us see that, God, all your word is written for our benefit. Lord, you said all scripture is given by your inspiration and it is all profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So teach us today, God. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come right now and lead us into truth now. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. The prodigal son, this parable, has been called the gospel within the gospel. 
It has been called the crown and pearl of the parables. Charles Dickinson said that it is the finest short story that has ever been written. In this parable, we can see the main theme of the gospel. We know that Jesus was a great teacher. His teachings last for eternity. We're still talking about the teachings of Christ today, 2,000 years after his death and resurrection. He was a great reformer. He took a dead religion made up of rules and laws, and he reformed it into a living relationship with a living God. He was the most benevolent man in history. He had compassion and mercy and kindness. The Bible says he went about doing good and healing all that were sick and oppressed of the devil. But the main theme of the gospel is and was and always will be Jesus Christ is the redeemer of men. Because you see, it doesn't matter how much, he's, how much you've been taught. There are professors right now that are lost as you can be that knows the Bible. They've been taught the Bible, but it didn't make a difference in their life. If you're not redeemed, how, what difference does it make how much you know? You can know the whole Bible. Don Francisco wrote a song. He says, I don't care how, how many uh, buses you own or the size of your sanctuary. I don't care how steep your steeple is or if it's sitting on a cemetery. I don't care if you've paved your parking lot or put pads up on your pews. What good is a picture perfect stage if you're missing all the cues? I don't care if your preacher's superpower and your program's always new. What you need is love and hope and men are gonna come to you. I don't care if you know the Bible. If it's all just in your head, the thing I need to ask you is, have you done the things I've said? You see, it doesn't matter how much you know. If God hasn't redeemed your soul, he's a great reformer. It doesn't matter how many church roles you got your name on. You can be a part of the great reformation. You have your name on every church in America. But if your name's not written in the Lamb's book of life, come on. That's what really counts. Have you been redeemed? You can receive his goodness. He was benevolent. It doesn't matter how much he's blessed you if you're lost. The thing is, the, the old song says, have you been to Jesus for the cleansing blood if you've been washed in the blood of the lamb? Are your garments uh, spotless? Are they stained with sin or been washed in the blood of the lamb? See, the Bible says you must be born again. That is the gospel message. John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. That's his purpose for coming. Jesus said to Zacchaeus, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that is which is lost. Then the Apostle Paul said this, Jesus Christ came to save sinners of which I am the chief. Now that makes me think of, when, when I read that, I'm like, Paul considered himself to be the chief of all sinners? I don't think I would have given him that title, would you? The chief of all sinners. Think about that. Well, who would you call the chief of all sinners besides Pastor B? All right, we need to pick up the magnifying glass, right? I mean, the mirror, not the magnifying glass. I don't need to be looking at your sin. I need to be looking at... At me, all right? It's a full-time job just to keep me straight. But seriously, there are some people that are 
pretty serious sinners, amen? <laughs> the, the sad thing is some people, they don't even know that they're a sinner. I had a, I had a uh, relative of Jeannie's come to me at a funeral one time and she said, said Bernie, I, I'm concerned about my dad. She had married a Christian boy. She had gotten in church, given her life to Christ, was serving the Lord. And she asked her dad one day, said, Dad, what, what, what do you believe happens to you when you die? He said, well, I'm going to go to heaven. And she said, well, wh why? Why do you think you'll go to heaven? He said, well, I'm a good person. I treat people nice. I do good things. I, I'm a good person. And she said, he, he doesn't even realize that he's lost. He doesn't know. What, what do I do? And at the end of that story, I won't go into detail. I sent him some literature. He, he called me up one night. He said, I got your books you sent me. I've been reading them. He said, Bernie, I, I get it. I, I understand what you're trying to do. And said, I, listen, I appreciate it. Thank you. And when he died, he's, he's passed away since then. He was serving as a deacon in the church, give his life to Christ, turn his life around. But there was a time in his life he had no idea. And there's people like that, lost and don't know they're lost. You know, they're, they're, there's other people that they have an understanding that they are sinners. In fact, it is that knowledge that many people struggle with. Because there's a lot of people, you don't have to beat them over the head and tell them they're sinners. They know that. In fact, there's some, and there may be some here today that feels like I'm, I'm too unworthy. If you only knew what I have done. And there's people that feels like they are so unworthy. They are such huge sinners that God couldn't possibly love them. Can I give you a news flash? None of us are worthy. None of us are worthy. The Bible says there is none that doeth good. No, not one. And all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. So none of us are worthy of his forgiveness. And so the person that feels like they are the lowest, most rotten sinner out there, they are no different than you or I. And, and that's, I hope people can understand that. You see, all humanity is divided into three people groups. Those who are redeemed, they're born of his spirit. I believe that makes up the majority, maybe everyone in here. I hope I'm preaching to the choir this morning. But those who have never known his grace, some people that's lost, whether they know it or they don't, either they've rejected it, they've heard it, it's like, I'm not now, I'm gonna wait, or whatever, they put it off, I'm just, I, they just reject Christ. Or those who just realize, don't realize that they need it. They're oblivious to that. And then you have the third group is those who know it and they have fallen away from it. And so when we think of in the eyes of God, who would he call the chief of all sinners? Well, it wouldn't have been the apostle Paul. He is telling this story about the prodigal son because in his eyes, it's that person, the one who has sinned with knowledge. Second Peter chapter two, verse 20 says this, for if after you've escaped the pollution of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. When, I, when God revealed that to me, I'm like, what could be worse than being lost in your sin and headed for hell? What could be worse than that? To know him and to turn from him, he said. The latter end of that person is worse than if they than the beginning. It goes on to say in verse 21, for it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandments delivered unto them. 
but it has happened unto them according to the true proverb. The dog is turned to his own vomit, and the sow was to her, her wallowing in the mire. You see, the prodigal son is a description of that type of a sinner. And that's why he is, he's telling this. When we think of those in the most despicable sinner, the mo person who's in the most need of grace, the chief among sinners, who, who, would you, who would you give that title to? I just did a study last week. I, I do some weird studies, forgive me, but I was studying the, 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 um, the English occupation of Africa, and I was studying the, the history of Shaka, the chief of the Zulu tribe. And, and he, was a, he was a young man that was re rejected by his own father. His father was the prince of the, to be the, soon to be the king of the, the Zulus. And the Zulus wasn't a very big tribe, but he was to be the, the, the king. And his father sired this boy from a native girl that he wasn't married to. And because of that relationship, he took her to be his, one of his wives, but he never would really accept Shaka. So he was mistreated his whole life. Now, I'm not going to go into all the details. And because of that, it, it caused a, a resentment and a hatred and a rage inside of him. He finally went to a his father, actually, when he was, grew up and became a warrior, his father sent his warriors to kill him, and he had to run for his life, and he ran out of the, the, the territory of the Zulus into a, a tribe that was 10 times bigger than the Zulu. And they captured him there and was going to take him back, and the king of that tribe said, no, he's my guest, and sent them away. And so then he has him join his warriors, and he works his way up to become the general over all of those warriors. Now, all of a sudden, he's got at his disposal warriors 10 times larger than his own tribe. And he goes back, kills his half-brother who was coronated as king and becomes the king of the Zulu. And at the end of it all, he had 60,000 warriors under his command. He scourged East Africa. One tribe after the other after the other. He just went in slaughtering women and children. His, his mark, if you knew it had been there, you'd walk up to the city and he would have long poles that were sharpened on the end and he would impale his victims outside the city. That would be a guy that I would say would be chief among sinners. People like that. Who would you call? Hitler? The Sandy Hook shooter? The Sutherland Spring Church shooter, a guy went into a church, killed everybody in the church. Children killed a five-year-old child. The lowest of the low. And you look at them and say, how could God extend grace to them? Max Licato wrote a book one time. I've, I read this once before in church. His book was entitled, In the Grip of Grace. And this is what he writes. He said, you know what distur disturbs me about Jeffrey Dahmer? How many of you know who Jeffrey Dahmer is? All right. What disturbs me most are not his acts, though they were disgusting. Dahmer was convicted of 17 murders. 11 corpses were found in his apartment. He cut off arms. He ate body parts. The Tharsis has 204 synonyms for vile, the word vile. But each falls short of describing a man who kept skulls in his refrigerator and hoarded a human heart. He redefines the boundary of brutality. 
The Milwaukee monster dangled from the lowest rum of human conduct and then dropped. But that's not what troubles me most. Can I tell you what troubles me most about Jeffrey Dahmer? It's not his trial. As disturbing as it was with all those pictures of him sitting serenely in court, frozen face, motionless, no sign of remorse, no hint of regret. Remember his steely eyes and impassive face, but I don't speak of him because of his trial. There's another reason. Can I tell you what really troubles me about Jeffrey Dahmer? Not his punishment, though life without parole is hardly an exchange for his actions. How many years would satisfy justice? A lifetime in jail for every life he took? But that's another matter, and that's not what troubles me most about Jeffrey Dahmer. May I tell you what does? It was his conversion. Months before an inmate murdered him, Jeffrey Dahmer became a Christian. He said he repented. He was sorry for what he did, profoundly sorry. Said he put his faith in Christ and was baptized. Started life over, began reading Christian books and attending chapel. He said, that troubles me. It shouldn't, but it does. Grace for a cannibal? Maybe you have the same reservations. But if not about Dahmer, perhaps about someone else. Have you ever wrestled with the death, deathbed conversion of a rapist or the 11th hour conversion of a child molester? We've sentenced them, maybe not in court, but in our hearts. We put them behind bars and locked the door. They are forever imprisoned by our disgust. And then the impossible happens. They repent. Grace is hard to understand. Do we not reason within our hearts that there ought to be a line where grace will reach and save someone good, middle or upper class, who is a Protestant, or not reach out to the down, uh, reach out and down to a Dahmer or a Timothy McVeigh or a Hitler, or to some other poor wretch who doesn't look, act, smell, or believe like us? Do we not believe in grace with limits and mercy with certain qualifications? Maybe we do, but God doesn't. His grace is truly amazing, and his mercy is all to all generations. That, isn't that true? In our minds, don't we think, because if I'm reading this, can you think of somebody who's like, I can't imagine God ever forgiving a person like that. Because in our minds, we wouldn't. We would condemn them. But God's grace, it really is amazing, isn't it? You know, the man that wrote that, was a, he, he was a slave trader. He, he captured slaves and, 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 and took them into uh, other countries and ships, many of them dying along the ways. And, and he said, how could God ever forgive me for the things that I have done? And he penned the words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. His grace really is amazing. The lowest of the low. You see, to make this point, Jesus addressed a group of people that the Pharisees criticized him for. The Pharisee, the reason he's telling the parable of the prodigal son is because the Pharisees were saying, what do you think you're doing? You eat with publicans and sinners. 
Who's he talking about? He's talking about Matthew, the tax collector. You're eating with an IRS agent. Uh, that's what they're saying. You're, e you're eating with a guy that is robbing and stealing from us. And you're eating with sinners. Mary Magdalene, a prostitute, who came in and washed his feet with the tears from her face. You, you're eating with them. And so to show them just who is the lowest of the low, he tells the story of the parable of the prodigal son because who he's really talking about is them. The Pharisees who he's talking to, they were the ones he was addressing. You see, in our eyes, the lowest of the low are the, the Shaka king of the Zulu or Hitler or the Sandy Hook shooter or the Sutherland Spring shooter, Jeffrey Dahmer, Timmy McVeigh, Hitler, Bin Laden, whoever, you know. But to God, it's those who left the father's house for what they think that the world had to offer. It was the Pharisees. We call that person a backslider. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 14 says, the backslider in heart shall be filled with his own ways and a good man shall be satisfied from himself. What it is saying is a good man will be satisfied with God's ways. Come on, I wanna be a good man, how about you? And satisfied with what God has for my life. But a backslider is only satisfied with his own ways. There is something about the nature of man. I don't know what it is, but we just by nature are attracted to the forbidden. Isn't that true? All the way from the garden. Out of all the trees you may freely eat, but there was only one tree. Don't, don't eat that tree. And that's the one that they were attracted to. There is just something about our nature. We, we, we just have to know what's out there. Our curiosity, our desire, our cravings, our passions, our lust, what, what is it? But there's something about human nature. We just have to see what Humpty and Dumpty just had to know what was on the other side of the wall. Right? So they climbed up on the wall and they had a great fall. I preached a sermon on that one time. Humpty and I know it's Humpty Dumpty. I get it. But my version is Humpty and Dumpty, all right? And so all the king's horses and king men couldn't put them back together again. But listen, God can, the king can put them back together again. That's another message. You see, we think I might be missing something. I have just got to see what's out there, searching for something else. We believe the grass is always greener on the other side. What do I tell you? Where's the grass always greener? How many remembers that? Over the septic tank. Yeah. You think the grass is greener? Yeah, it is. It's over the septic tank. Luke 15, 12 says, The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them. Now, see, you have to understand what's going on here. He's talking to Pharisees, and they understand the Jewish culture. And in the Jewish culture, this is something a, a young man would never do because it's up to the elder son to make a request like that, which he wouldn't even do. Because by making that request, you don't receive your inheritance until after your father has died. So by going to your father and say, Father, give me my inheritance now, he's saying, I wish you were dead. 
Now they're hearing this. They fully understand the ramifications of what he's saying. This young man said, what to his father? Give me in my, you, he wanted his father dead. He, what he was saying is, God, dad, I want what you have for me. I don't want a relationship with you. I just want what you've got from me. I don't want to obey your commands. Give me, give me, give me. See, the Jewish people that he was talking to, the Pharisees, they, they understood this to be the highest level of insult. This was the lowest of the low. This is a Jeffrey Dahmer low of the low. Everything that my father has worked for all of his life, I'm going to, this young man, he's telling them this young man went out and wasted it on, rowdy, on, on prodigal living. He, and he could not have possibly insulted his father more than what he did. Just think about it. You work your whole life. You start with nothing and you build up, you accumulate, you accumulate. Here comes this kid and says, give it to me now. I wish you'd just go ahead and die. I don't care about you. I don't care about a relationship. You just give me what I got coming. And so you give it all to him, everything you work for all your life. And in a matter of months, it's gone. What higher level of insult could you imagine than that? And so the boy took the money. He spent it all. All of his friends left him. And now he is seating with the pigs. He's broke. He's all alone, wallowing in the, in the mire. How many have ever felt that way? I have done some stupid things in my life. I don't know if you've ever been outside the favor of God once you come to know him, but I have. I know exactly what this young man felt like because I've been there. And some of you, I don't know who I'm talking to. I don't know who's going to hear this. this. This message goes out to over 43 countries around the world. We, by the way, if you're listening, we're waiting for the fire. What is that? Uh, firefly, I think you call it. Internet service. I got it hooked up at my house. I was one of the first ones to get in. And baby, that thing is fast. All right, it's great. It works good. And once we get it, we're going to start live streaming again. We can't do that right now. It's recorded, but it goes out. And, and I don't know who's going to hear this, but there's people that feel that way sometimes. I, I, I'm the lowest of the low. God, I'm too unworthy. But let me tell you, there is still hope for you. He said in verse 17, look at it. But when he came to himself and said, how many in my father's house have hired servants, have bread enough and despair, and I perish with hunger. He said, I'm going to rise, go to my father's house, say, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. You see, the requirements for him to be restored to his father and to receive forgiveness is he had to have a reality check. And church, that's true about all of us. Every single person has to come to a place where they have a reality check and they realize that I am lost and undone without Christ. And that's every person. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I, I said earlier, some people, they, they know they're sinners. They feel like they're unworthy. Some people don't realize that they're sinners. You know, 
Ray Comfort did a very great message years ago called Hell's Best Kept Secret. And he, he uses this technique of helping people realize that they are in need of a savior. He asked him a question. Have you ever told a lie? Well, have you ever told a lie? Huh? What does that make you? You guys need to learn this because this is a very good tool to use. What does that make you? Makes you a liar. Have you ever stole anything, something small? What does that make you? He goes out and he videos this guy that makes you a stealer. <laughs> it makes you a thief, right? He said, Jesus said of old, you've heard he said of old, thou shalt not commit adultery. But verily I say, and if you look with lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Have you ever looked with somebody and lusted? Oh, you've never lusted? Oh, you have. What does that make you? An adulterer at heart. He said, thou shalt not take the Lord thy God's name in vain. Have you ever taken God's name in vain? Instead of using the holy name of God in reverence, you use it as a curse word. And the Bible says you will not be found guiltless on the day of judgment who has blasphemed the name of the Lord. So you see, we've looked four of the Ten Commandments and you're a lying, thieving, blaspheming adulterer at heart. And you have to stand before God on the day of judgment. And you see, once we realize that, the Bible says that the law was the schoolmaster that brought me to grace. I didn't know what grace was, but by the law. So when we look at the law, it's like, I'm a liar, I'm a thief, I'm an adulterer at heart, I'm a blasphemer, and I'm going to stand before God. Then we realize all have sin and come short of the glory of God. All right? And because of that, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ our Lord. Amen? I'm going to tie my sheep before I wind up in that baptismal pool. Before I'm ready to get in there. <clears throat> So we come to that reality check. See, forgiveness is always available to those <clears throat> who seek it, but it's, it's not without repentance. You have to acknowledge your transgression, repent, and request Jesus to come into your heart and life. This boy had done all the things that was required. He came to himself. He acknowledged the fact, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against my father. I'm going to go back and I'm going to make a request. God, Dad, I'm not worthy to be your son. Just make me a servant. You know, that is the picture of repentance. Verse 20, it says this. It's the climax of the gospel is in verse 20. He rose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion. He ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. You see, the father was waiting for him. You've got to get this picture. Every day he's looking out the door because it said he saw him afar off. Now, we don't know for sure, but it's a parable. It's not a true story. It's a parable. But there's a reality. What Jesus is saying is that, look, God the Father, the Bible says that his eyes roam to and fro over the earth looking for those who will come to him in repentance. He's looking for you, and he sees you afar off when you come, and he doesn't wait till you come crawling up to him. I'm such an wor unworthy worm. He doesn't wait for that. The Bible says that he ran to him. He ran to him and fell upon his neck. Do you got to understand, this is one seriously nasty, dirty little boy. He just got up out of the wallow feeding with the pigs. He's got this all over his garments. His garments are stained with sin. 
And the father comes, he's dirty, he's stinking, he's nasty, and he falls on his neck and embraces him and kisses him. What a beautiful picture of God's mercy and his grace that's extended to you and I. Now, why did he run to him? Because in Jewish culture, old men don't run. It's undignified. They, they don't run. So why is he running to him? He's running to him to save his life. Deuteronomy 21, look at this. Are you still with me? Say amen. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son, which will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and that when they have chastened him, he will not hearken unto them. Then shall his father and his mother lay hold on him, bring him out unto the elders of the city and unto the gate of his place. And they shall say to the elders of his city, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And all the men of the city shall stone him with stones that he die. So shall thou put evil away from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. You see, in their culture, he's telling this story to the Pharisees. They understand this boy has insulted his father in the highest level. He is worthy of death. If we can get our hands on him, we're going to stone him to death. All right, so in his story, he's telling them this. They know he's coming, all right? When he gets here, grab him. We're going to kill him. So the father runs to protect him. He's telling them, back off. Nobody's touching this boy. It's a picture of the thief that come to steal, kill, and destroy. There's a, there's a person that hates you. He, he wants to kill you. He wants to steal from you and destroy you. But God, if you will turn to God, he will run to you and embrace you and protect you from the devourer so that he can't touch you. See, his father didn't stone him. He ran to him. He realized that he had been searching in all the wrong places. All that he needed was in his father's house. Now, in the story, how many of you have seen the, the, the Jesus Revolution? Now, some of you is like, I don't get it. Well, you weren't there. All right, I was, so maybe it's just because it is such deja vu. I'm like, it, it messes me up. Greg Lowry, who, who, how many of you know who Greg Lowry is? He, he's, a, he's an evangelist today. He's doing a magnificent job at reaching people for Christ. A lot of young people still today. He tells of the quote, he went to a concert and his girlfriend actually, when she, she invited her to this concert and said, the prophet himself is going to be there. Well, you think a prophet? Yeah, I want to go hear a prophet. This is what the prophet said, quote, everyone is accepted here. We love each other freely and without discrimination. Right. We're hearing that today. We need to just love everybody, accept everybody without discrimination. What is that saying? It doesn't matter what they're doing. You know, it doesn't matter what they're doing. We just need to accept everybody and whatever they're doing is okay. The Bible has a word for that. It's called lasciviousness. It means without restraints. 
There are some things that the scripture teaches us that we cannot do. It's wrong. It's an abomination to God. And we need to know those. They're not rules and laws that we have to follow legalistically. But listen, if I love my father and it insults him to do something, then I'm not going to do that because it's insulting to my father. All right. But what he is saying is it doesn't matter what you guys are doing. Come on in. We love everybody without discrimination. See, the first commandment in the satanic Bible is whatsoever thou will. Whatever you want to do, it's okay. If it feels good, do it. In fact, that was the theme of the culture in the 60s and 70s. If it feels good, do it. Groovy, man, far out. Freaky, funky, heavy, cool, man. He said, quote, there are no facades, no lies, no masks, just a relentless pursuit of the truth by those who have expanded their consciousness. Sounds good, doesn't it? Yes, we want truth. How are they expanding their consciousness? LSD. Acid. He's talking about taking a trip. Some of you is like, I've been there done that then he goes on to say the psychedelic experience is a confrontation with the divine it is a spiritual awakening you come back come back from what the psychedelic experience the trip on acid is what he's talking about you come back and you define God the best you can so turn on tune in and drop out so start a new sequence of behavior that matches your vision. Those are the words of the prophet. This was, listen, church, this was the spirit of that movement in the hippies. And that's why they were in Ashbury doing everything and everyone. Now, I didn't go to that extreme. I want you to understand, Pastor, but he didn't go to that extreme but I can relate to some of this because I had an encounter where I came to myself. In 1973, July the 13th, 1974, I'm sorry, July the 13th, it was just weeks before what they called the August Jam. The August Jam was on August the 10th. 1974 in Charlotte, North Carolina. It was the Charlotte Motor Speedway. It was the biggest concert, rock concert ever held in North Carolina uh, to this day. They've never had a bigger one. And it was the biggest concert of, ever of its time at that time in history. There was over 300,000 in attendance at the jam. Now, the one I went to was not quite that big. The the top, the um, the groups that were there was ZZ Top, Leonard Skinner, Rare Earth, Leon Russell, Evan Bishop, and Billy Preston. Now, the only reason I know that is because I went online and looked it up. And the reason I didn't know that, I knew ZZ Top was there and Rare Earth was there. A friend invited me. So we went, and it's just a sea of hippies and drugs everywhere. But I was in such a cloud and a fog, I, I can't tell you a thing that happened there or it was just all a fog. 
the, and I told Jeannie, the reason I'm sharing this, I told her the other day, I'd never told her about this. I said, the only thing I remember out of that whole concert, honey, there was an African-American man, had a great big afro, and he was saying, this is God's plan. This is the way he wants it. And I said, that's all I can remember hearing out of the whole concert. That's the only thing I remember hearing, Jeannie. And I looked around a pastor's son who was a follower of Jesus Christ who'd walked away. I had to see what was on the other side. And I wound up here in the wallow. Do you see this? And I'm hearing this. This is God's plan. This is the way he wanted it. And I remember saying to myself, this is not God's plan. This is not God's plan for me. And so after we had that conversation, she said, Bernie, you should share that sometime. I went back and looked it up. It was Billy Preston was the man I saw. There's a picture. You can look it up. There's a picture of him. I, and I was like, that's, that's the guy. I remember him. That's the guy. And the song he sang was, that's the way God planned it. That's the name of the song. And of course, as that's the way God planned it, that's the way God wants it to be, didn't he? Well, that's the way God planned it. That's the way God wants it to be for you and me. And actually, when you read the words to that song, it's actually good. And I'm, I'm thinking, this is 1974 at a rock concert. He's singing a gospel song. He says, we, why can't we be humble? Like the good Lord said, he promised to exalt us for love is the way. How men be so greedy when there's so much left. All things are God-given and they all have been blessed. That's the way God planned it. That's the way God wants it to be, didn't he? That's the way God planned it. That's the way God wants it for you and me. Let your heart, let not your heart be troubled. Let mourning, sobbing cease. Learn to help one another and live in perfect peace. If, just, if we just be humble, like the good Lord said, he promised to exalt us for love is the way. Uh, then he says, I hope you get this message and where you want, others will. You don't understand me, but I will love you still. That's the way God planned it. And I, I read the words, I'm like, if I had been sober, and heard that, as a Christian, I was like, yes, amen, that's right. But all I, that's all I heard out of the whole concert, and I believe that's all God wanted me to hear, because God convicted. Yeah. <laughs> I said, no, this is not the way you wanted it, God. This is not what you wanted for me. And it was a come to Jesus, wake up moment for me. Five days later, I'm in Virginia. I left home. I packed everything in a suit, in a, in a pillowcase. I gave the keys to my car to my brother. I said, sell my car and send me the money. He said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to Virginia. It's the only place I ever felt like home in my whole life as a teenager. I called my friend. I, I moved to Virginia. Seven days later, I met Jeannie. And I turned my life around. It's a long story of how I got to the place where I was, I had left my father's house. Because you see, I personally was searching for something that was on the other side. 
And when I came to that point, I felt so unworthy. But church, I was desperate. I was desperate. And I can tell you personally that when God sees you coming, you don't have to come crawling to him on bended knee. He ran to meet me. My stench. I was an embarrassment. My dad was a pastor. I knew better. I had disgraced my dad, my mom, with the way I was living. So I can relate to the person that says, I'm, I'm worthy. If you only knew what I had done, if you only knew the things I said, God knows, and he still loves you. His father didn't stone him. He ran to him. He restored him to a place of relationship. He said, give him the robe. The robe is a, was given for honor. The robe is a picture of being having your garments that are stained with sin, being covered by the blood of the lamb. Put my ring on his finger. That's a picture of authority. Put my shoes on his feet. That's a picture of sonship. And kill the fatted calf. That's a picture of being, being a special guest. God wants to treat us that way. Amen. Praise God. Well, this morning we're going to baptize some people that has come to that understanding. They, they have trusted Jesus. I'm gonna, if you're a candidate for baptism here this morning, you, maybe you don't have your name on the list, but you want to be baptized. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and take a minute and step out and go ahead and get prepared for baptism. The worship team's going to uh, minister to us while we're getting ready. Uh, we had a couple people that uh, we have some family that's out of town that was going to be baptized this morning. And I told them we actually may do this again next week for their benefit. But you know, <clears throat> why don't you stand to your feet just a minute and stretch your legs and then I'm going to have you sit back down while we do the baptismal service. I love Don Francisco. You know I quote his songs frequently. But this one, he, he, write, he wrote songs from the perspective of how it would be seen through the eyes of people in Scripture. Like, for example, he wrote the song, He's Alive, Through the Eyes of Simon Peter. All right. And so he's writing a song about the parable son through the eyes of his father, the father. And he says, I loved you long before your eyes first saw the day. Everything that I've promised you has been to help you on the way. But you took all that you wanted, and at last you took your leave. And you traded off a kingdom for the lies that you believe. And although you've chosen darkness with its miseries and fear, although you've wandered so far away and wasted all these years, although my name has been spattered <clears throat> in the mire in which you lie, I would take you back this instant if you would just turn to me and cry. And then I like the chorus. Listen carefully. I don't care where you've been sleeping. I don't care who's made your bed. I've already gave my life to set you free. And there is no sin you can imagine that is stronger than my love. And it's all yours if you'll just come home to again, again to me. So I'm going to ask you if you would just bow your head this morning.
I don't know who I'm talking to this morning, but I believe that there's somebody here and you can't honestly say that if, 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 if Jesus were to call my name right now and my days ended right now, the Bible says it's appointed unto every man to die and after death, the judgment. Listen, each and every one of us will stand before God. And if he says, why should I let you into my kingdom? What would you say to him? Would you be like my friend, my relative that asked me about her dad? And he said, well, I'm a good person. I treat people right. What would you say to him? Where are you in your relationship with God? Or do you have a relationship with him? Because what I can tell you is that Jesus is waiting this morning to embrace you. You see, in that story, he didn't want to show the Pharisees how disgusted they were to God. He wanted to show the world how much the Father wants to embrace us with his grace. Lonnie Frisbee looked at Chuck Smith and said, Chuck Smith, what would it take for you to be desperate? What does it take for you to be desperate? I got to a place where I was desperate. Are you desperate today? If your life is not <clears throat> right with God, if you're not ready to meet Him, you have to simply have a moment where you come to yourself. It's like, I, I know I'm not ready to meet God. And I want to be right with God today. If that's you, I'm going to just ask you, if you would, while everyone has their head bowed, everybody's praying, I want to pray for you, and I close. I'm not going to embarrass you, I promise. But if you're here this morning, you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. And you could say, Pastor, I'm not a Christian, but I would like to commit my life to Christ today. Would you just slip up your hand? I want to pray for you. I see your hand. I see your hand. Let me say to you, all right, you slipped up your hand. It's not a matter of whether you're worthy or not. None of us are worthy. When you think about all the things you've done, all the things you said, it's like, how could God love me? His grace is beyond our understanding. But he loves you. And once he says you're forgiven, he says, I have put your sins in the sea of forgetfulness, never to be remembered against you again. Your sins are as far as the east is from the west, and you're clean. So right now, I want you, young lady, to receive that forgiveness. Receive it in Jesus' name. He's cleansing you and making you whole. Is there anybody else? Say, Pastor, I'm not a Christian, but I would like to accept Jesus Christ as my Savior today. Aren't you ready to meet God? Father, as we close the service today and get ready for our baptismal service, God, I pray for this precious lady, Lord, that has raised her hand. God, Lord, I pray that you would just let her experience the arms of the Father wrapping around her, Lord. God, you kissed him. You embraced him. You gave him honor. You gave him authority. Lord, I pray that she just receives all of that right now in Jesus' name your blessing, your honor, your authority, your sonship, your daughtership, Lord. 
in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray for every person, God, that's here today, Lord, if they are in a place where they're not as close to you as they once were, God, draw them back into your favor, I pray. Lord, if there's someone here today and they, they've heard the gospel, Lord, and they're just not ready right now to receive you, God, I pray that you continue to draw them. Lord, may your grace and mercy and favor be uh, added to their life, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you would go ahead and be seated, we're going to go ahead and get ready for baptismal service, and uh, the worship team will continue to lead you. If I could get a couple of guys to move this for me, would you please? If you're a candidate for baptism, why don't you just meet me back behind the altar here, please?
This is one of the more, jo more joyful things that we can do is just the baptismal service. You know, you understand that Jesus was baptized himself by John the Baptist. You know, and he gives us instructions to be baptized. Now, we understand that it's not baptism that saves you. By grace are you saved through faith. You're saved the minute that you trust Jesus as your Savior and invite him to come into your heart. He saves you. But at that moment, what happens is you die to the old man and you're buried with Christ and then you're resurrected to walk in a new life. And that is what baptism is symbolic of. It's not something that's happening to you. It's something that you've already done. And what this actually is, it's a public testimony that you've put your trust in Jesus Christ. Because the Bible says, if you're ashamed of me before men, I will be ashamed of you before my Father, which is in heaven. So baptism is a public testimony of I've placed my trust in Jesus Christ, and I've given my life to him. I've died to the old person. I have been buried with Christ Jesus, and I've been risen to walk in new life. And so we rejoice in baptizing people. Praise God. You know. And today, uh, Dave and Tammy are coming. Uh, they're newlyweds. And they are wanting to, amen, let's give them praise. And they, they want to start their wedding, their marriage out on the right foot with Jesus in the center of their marriage, you know. And as a testimony of we want Christ in our home, we want him in our life, we want to do this together. And so they're coming as husband and wife to be baptized together. So, Dave, won't you come on, brother? Uh, as Pastor B said, uh, Tim and I recently got married. Uh, we uh, have both been baptized before, but we want to be baptized again um, in front of our church family and our family we invited. Um, we're both very blessed. We've been looking for each other for a long time. Um, also, uh, one of the nicest things that anybody's ever done for us, about six years ago, Chelsea invited us to church. And uh, actually, I think she invited me to meet another lady friend of hers. <laughs> Obviously, that wasn't the one. But um, for people who don't know, Chelsea and I work together. And uh, I tell people all the time, she's like my sister. But she reminds me that she was born the year that I graduated high school. So we settled on uh, a daughter. So um, we're a little too aggressive sometimes at work, and Nate, he keeps us, he pulls us back a little bit. But anyway, um, but thank you for that, Chelsea. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Amen. This is a good guy. I like Dave. Good man. Dave, upon your profession of faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's my honor today, sir, to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.
much of a public speaker, but um, I was baptized in the 90s and I never stopped believing in God, but I didn't always make the right choices. And so I never lost my faith and I feel like I am incredibly indebted to God. I'm so thankful that he brought David into my life and renewed my trust and my faith. This is a great couple, guys. I don't know if you know David and Tammy, but you need to get to know them. They're just sweethearts, both of them. And Tammy, there, there is something special about recommitting your life to Christ and, and following it up with baptism. I, I did that. And I, I've made a, a, a pledge that if I ever make it to Israel, I want to be baptized in the Jordan. So I'll be baptized again. You know, I don't know if that day will ever come. But um, <clears throat> I, I'm so happy that you've made this choice and you're starting out. You guys are starting out your life, putting Christ in the center. And uh, that's great. That's great. Amen. So, Tammy, upon your profession of faith in Jesus Christ, it's my pleasure to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you've been to one of our baptismal services, I always tell you the story about Philip and the eunuch. The eunuch was an Ethiopian eunuch, and he was in his chariot, and he was reading the book of Isaiah. And Philip saw him. He said, what are you reading? And he told him. And so he climbed up into the chariot and began to explain to him who Jesus was. And the Bible says that the eunuch pulled the chariot to stop and said, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, well, if you believe, you can be baptized. And he took him down into the water and baptized the eunuch. And then he was caught up and found preaching in Samaria. If you read Acts chapter 8, it's an account of what happened when Philip went to Samaria. He said when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John there to baptize him with the Spirit. For they had not been baptized in the Spirit. They had only been baptized in water. Well, it was Philip that did all of that. But when he was with the eunuch, he told him, he said, if you believe, you can be baptized. And so I tell you, every time we do baptismal service, here's water. What does hinder you to be baptized? And we've had times that people have come up, didn't plan to be baptized, but said, you know, this is something I need to do. I remember one guy. He pulled his cell phone out of his pocket, pulled his wallet out of his pocket, handed it to his wife, said, here, hold this. I've got to go do something. And I have watched that man as God has transformed his life into a new creation. Amen. Some of you know who I'm talking about. And so here's water. What does hinder you to be baptized? So if there's someone here this morning you want to be baptized, we would be more than glad to do that for you. Anyone at all. No? All right. Well, praise God. Well, stand with me if you would, please. 
Once again, let me remind you, we're going to be doing the Acts 2 dinner. Please, if you're visiting, please join us. And, and those who are, of course, our regular attenders and our members there, we would love to have a time of fellowship with you. So, Father, we just thank you, Lord, for this morning, God. I thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit, God. I thank you, Lord, that you love us. And, God, that you stand looking for those who have wandered away, God. In fact, you told a story about the sheep, and if one goes astray, you go looking for that one. You leave the 99 safe in the fold, and you go and search until you find that one. God, I'm thankful that you came looking for me. Lord, the Jesus revolution, is a pro- we're a product of that. Jeannie and I, our marriage is a product of that. This church is a product of that. Lord, people that's searching and they found you. And so, God, I thank you today that, that when people look for you, you are near, God, and you are there to be found. So, God, I pray that everybody here, they know you and the free pardon of sin. Lord, now, God, as we break apart and go into the uh, dinner, God, I pray for our food, Lord. I ask your blessing on it, God. I give you the praise for it. I ask that you bless it and our fellowship now. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. God bless you.